Again, welcome uh, to The Grove. Uh, if you're um, here visiting, uh, uh, typically I, I am uh, up here teaching. We're teaching through uh, books of the Bible. We're in the middle of uh, study through 2 Corinthians. Today, today, though, we have a special treat for you uh, as one of my good friends uh, is here to preach God's word uh, with us here this morning, Jared Wilson. Um, so Jared, if you're unfamiliar with his ministry, Jared and I uh, became friends a number of years ago around our shared love for Disney World. Um, so Jared loves Disney uh, in general, but Disney World and Disney Parks in particular. And you may go, well, how much of a Disney fan, you may ask? That's a good question. I'll give you some of these things that may give you a hint. One of his favorite rides in the park is Living with the Land. If you've never heard of it, welcome to the rest of the world. None of us have either, but he loves it. Um, he spent more than a few days at the parks by himself. He has two daughters, but he enjoys going by himself um, as well. So he's gone and just enjoyed time there alone. And he's also still getting over the fact that Frozen has replaced Maelstrom in Norway. Um, so he's still dealing with that, and we will pray with him as that happens. But he is, in the truest sense, a true Disney file. Um, beyond that, though, Jared also has a contagious love for Jesus and his gospel of grace. Jared's just one of the guys I just love to listen to and read because every time I do, my affections for Jesus is, are stirred and I'm just reminded of God's incredible grace in unique ways. Uh, brother, I, I really mean this. There's one other guy that does that, especially when I listen to him is Ray Ortland. Ray's had an influence on you as well. Um, but you're in that same vein for me. When I hear both of you guys, I'm just so stirred for Jesus's love and gospel and his grace in my life. Um, so in uh, one, one word I may use to describe Jared then is truly being gospelicious, if you will. Um, <laughs> And so I'm so excited that he is here this morning. He's written over a dozen books. He leads a podcast called For the Church. He's currently pursuing his doctorate uh, at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, while he's also on faculty there, his official title is author in residence. So, so fancy. Um, and so he has uh, taken the time to be able to come down here uh, with us. He's married to a fellow Louisiana uh, native, Becky, who shares my love for crawfish, Cajun food, and the saints. Drew Brees is starting today, by the way. I don't know if you heard. I'm excited about that. Um, and they we also have two daughters. Macy's a freshman in college, and Grace is here with us uh, this morning. Uh, it's been a surprising and kind of profound moment for me being able to see my friends begin to step in and minister in context where, where I am. So I'm just so excited to have you here this morning, brother, and to remind us of God's incredible gospel and his grace. So join me in welcoming Jared this morning. Good morning. It is a privilege to be with you. If you have a Bible with you, if you turn to John chapter 13. John chapter 13, we're going to be spending um, our time in verses 1 through 11, but really focusing on verse 1 and using the rest of our, our, of our passage for context. I want to answer the question, attempt to answer the question with you, how loved are you? I don't know if you wonder about that. I don't know if you think about that. Just how loved am I? Maybe the message itself will prompt the question for you. Um, I, um, because I'm a weird person once upon a time, um, wondered if the disciples, those who follow Jesus uh, closest with him, walking on his uh, you know, earthly ministry journey alongside him, if they ever wondered if he loved them. Sometimes I think we take for granted, we, we just assume that the disciples who were so close to Jesus, they just knew. That, you know, Surely they just knew that he loved them. But you got to wonder, like as they're... Um, 
you know, going through this three-year process, the, the earthly ministry of Christ, and, um, you know, there are things that he is saying that are really hard for them to understand quite often. Um, there are things that he says that um, are meant to be literal, and they receive it as symbolic. There are things that he says that are symbolic, and they receive it as literal. There are many times where he stops them to correct them. Uh, if you remember, he's giving, uh, um, you know, parables, and, and, and his closest followers don't understand what the parables mean, and he kind of, like, says to them, how do you not understand this? You know, so... Over time, if I'm those guys, I'm wondering, like, does this guy love me, or am I just in some kind of boot camp thing? And you know, how like how's this gonna how's this gonna work out? Like the day, do you remember? Um, there was a particularly harsh rebuke for Peter uh, that, that that Jesus gave him, and I wonder, like that night, is like Peter staring awake uh, in bed, laying you know at the ceiling and thinking, he called me the devil today. <laughs> Like, that's got to sting a little bit, right? Like, Jesus calls you the devil. That's going to land a particular way. So I wondered, okay, what, at, at what point does he say to these guys, hey, guys, look, I, I love you. And so I went looking through the four Gospels, which is where we see, uh, you know, the historical narratives of, of Jesus' earthly ministry with his followers. I went to go see where does he say, I love you guys in the middle of everything, and what I discovered, <laughs> what I discovered was, um, it doesn't appear actually until this chapter, the fourth gospel, John chapter thirteen, is the first time that he addresses his direct love for them. He says other things about love, like love one another and God loves the world and those sorts of things. But the first time we have any sort of variation is in verse 34, actually right outside of our focus passage of John chapter 13, where he says, love one another just as I have loved you. That's the first verbal reference from Jesus about his love for his followers. So I wondered if they wondered. And more importantly, perhaps, I wonder if you ever wonder, if you ever lay awake at night and stare at the ceiling, and with everything going on in your life, you begin to ask the question, is he mad at me? With all of this stuff that I'm going through, with all the things that I have to carry around in my heart, is it possible that I've got this love of God thing wrong? Is it possible that he kind of has it out for me? That I've somehow crossed some line that for him is just too far or too much? How loved do you think you are? Let's begin reading in verse 1 of John chapter 13. Before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Notice it's a narrative point, not a point of dialogue. Verse 2, now when it was time for supper, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, to betray him. Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands, that he had come from God and that he was going back to God. So he got up from supper, laid aside his outer clothing, took a towel, and tied it around himself. Next, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to dry them with the towel tied around him. He came to Simon Peter, who asked him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I'm doing, you don't realize now, but afterward you will understand. You will never wash my feet, Peter said. Jesus replied, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. One who has bathed, Jesus told him, doesn't need to wash anything except his feet, but he is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you for he knew who would betray him. This is why he said, not all of you are clean. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for it. We ask that you would bless our time together. Help us to treasure your word above all words, knowing that your word is eternal, that it lasts forever, even when the grass withers and the flowers fade. Help us to see your son 
very clearly in a fresh and new way that brings joy to our hearts, that would deepen our affections for him and for each other, that we would bring you so much glory. And it's in your son's name that we pray these things. Amen. What's also fascinating about this particular passage, this chapter, is that it really marks the turning point for the entire book. John chapter 13, verse 1, marks the introduction to the rest of the gospel. Uh, Jesus' focus has changed. He's become more narrow in his scope. Narratively, he's not so occupied with his public ministry of teaching and preaching and healing and all those sorts of things. Um, he is beginning to sort of uh, dial in with his closest friends and his cl um, closest followers. He's preparing them for his death. He knew that his hour had come to depart from the world, verse 1 says. So there's an urgency that kind of lays over this meeting, right? He's gathered with his closest followers for this meal. Now, scholars, if you look at different commentaries, they are um, uh, sometimes at odds about what meal this is and where this meal falls within the chronology of the Passion Week. Um, for me, um, I don't find it as important to know like which particular meal this is. Is it a pre-Passover meal? Is it the Passover meal, et cetera, et cetera. I'm going to leave that to the academics. I just want to know like what's going on. <laughs> what are they saying? What are they feeling? What does it mean? The shadow of the cross is looming over these 13 men. And so the time has come for Jesus to drive home some eternally important points, things that will matter forever. And he does this primarily not by getting up at a, a pulpit or a lectern to deliver like the final lecture or the last lecture. What he does is he rolls up his sleeves and he gets down on his hands and knees and washes their dirty feet. Now, to get to the scandal of this, you have to understand that to wash someone's feet is seen um, in this culture as the most menial, dishonorable task that there could be. Now, you and I understand it's kind of grody that this would take place, right? That's kind of the, the level that we work on. We understand it takes a little bit of humility or takes some humility to do this, but we mainly just see it as kind of gross. Uh, I once made the, um, the horrible uh, uh, decision of washing feet in my congregation when I was pastoring uh, at my last church while I preached a sermon. Don't ever try this, brother. It's the worst decision. And there were things I had not thought through. I really thought I'd thought through all the logistics of this thing. So I was going to preach extemporaneously off the top of my head while I wandered around the congregation washing people's feet. So I had a basin and a towel and there was water and everything. And, and, I, and you're think, you know, <laughs> they were thinking what you're thinking right now, which is, this is a terrible, why would you do this? <laughs> right? I wanted to demonstrate that the Lord has come to serve and I wanted to visualize that. Uh, but I knew people would freak out. They would absolutely freak out. Be, um, and so what I did was I had plants in the congregation. I called people ahead of time, uh, um, all men. So it didn't get weird trying to wash a woman's feet or anything like that. So I called men. I said, hey, is it all right if I wash your feet, you know, on Sunday morning? This is the, what I'm trying to do as an illustration. And, the, uh, and, and, and they all said yes. But what do you think they did the, the morning of before they got to church? They pre-washed their feet. <laughs> they made sure all the toenails were clipped and everything was clean, no stinky socks, nothing like that. They wanted me to wash clean feet. But what I didn't think through is that the other people in the congregation had no idea that I had pre-arranged this with. They just thought I was walking around randomly choosing people. And so they didn't hear a word I said because all they could do was sit there and shake like, he's going to come want to wash my feet, you know? <laughs> And so it was terrible. It was weird. It was, I, will I would never do it again. <laughs> it was absolutely weird. If you were a visitor that day, you're especially thinking, is this what happens every week, right? 
It's just things I hadn't thought through. But the reason it was weird is because it's gross, it's grody, it's kind of strange. In this culture, in Christ's culture, um, it, it, is, it is profane. It is scandalous. In fact, some Jewish theologians at the time argued that because it was such a menial, profane task that even Jewish slaves shouldn't be required to wash feet, only Gentile slaves should be required to wash feet. It's considered an act lower than low. And the only time, the only time that somebody would wash the feet of a peer, like a friend or a family member, would be in a very rare special act of love, maybe before someone is dying or something like that. But there are no examples, not a single example in either Jewish or Greco-Roman sources of a superior washing the feet of an inferior except here, John chapter 13. It is the only example we have from ancient literature of a superior washing the feet of an inferior. And it's God in the flesh, the God of the universe, on his hands and knees to do the job that even Jewish slaves are too good for. Do you think that you're loved? How loved do you think you are? Well, let me help you, keen and mainly again on verse one. Verse one is where we see the fullness of Christ's love for his disciples then and now. How loved are you? Well, my first point is this. You are loved from the beginning. You are loved from the beginning. Verse one includes the phrase, having loved his own. Having loved, it says. In the English verb tense, this is a, uh, what's called a perfect progressive form, meaning it's a past action that is continuing in the present. So it tells us, first of all, that everything that Jesus has been doing has been done out of love. He didn't decide at this meal, you know what, after I've been thinking about it after the last three years, now that I see you guys and I really consider it, I think I really do love you guys. No, that's not at all what is happening at this meal. It's, it's telling us that from the very beginning, he has even chosen them out of love. He has been loving them all along even if they doubted, even if they wondered, even in their confusion, even in their sin, he has been loving them. And he has been loving you all along as well. When did he begin? The Bible tells us that he began before time began. Before time began, he was loving you. He was loving you before there was a you to love. I think one of the best practices that many Christians could adopt as a, just a regular discipline is uh, the reading of Romans chapter 8. All of scripture is inspired and fallible and errant. And yet I, I find Romans chapter eight to be perhaps the peak, the mountain peak of all of scripture. It is maybe my favorite passage of the Bible. Read Romans chapter eight uh, as often as you think of it. I think it's the greatest chapter in the Bible. If you ever find yourself a little confused or a little hopeless, or the hurts are just really heavy and you can't see your way out, or you just feel under the weight of conviction of your sin, or just the burdens of life, anxiety, worry, depression, read Romans chapter eight again and again and again. And in Romans chapter eight, verse 29, we find something really important. And it's, and it's staggering really when you understand or begin to understand. Paul says this, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Now, notice this, something I noticed in, in, in the verse and noticed too late, I think. It's, it doesn't say for what he foreknew. In other words, it, it, it wasn't as though the Lord looked through time, 
saw that you were a good apple in the bunch, thought you would be an asset to the organization. He considered everything that you had done in the, or, or, or were going to do in the future and thought, that's a good addition to the team right there. They're going to take us to the next level. I'm going to choose that person. No, it says, for whom he foreknew, for who he foreknew. As if he looked through time and saw you and knew you. Meaning he knew you before there was a you and he predestined you to become like Jesus, knowing everything, not just your highlights, but your lowlights, the things you don't want anyone to know, the things that still no one else knows except you, the Lord knows, because he sees all the hidden secrets of our hearts and of our mind. He sees all of those things and chose you anyway. I don't know if you ever think about that, that knowing everything ahead of time, Christ loved you. Several years ago, really about 10 years or so years ago, there's this little movie that came out. It's called Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Anyone seen Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind? Exactly, which is why it didn't do very well. It lasted about two weeks at the box office. Uh, it was a very strange movie. Um, I don't mind spoiling it for you. You've had enough time. <laughs> okay, spoiler alert if you want to leave. Um, starred Jim Carrey and Kate Winslet, which is strange. It's got these big stars in it. Still no one saw it because it's very weird. But it... It has this little love story to it. And one reason why I kind of enjoyed the movie is um, because it, it begins like a lot of sort of romantic comedies do or romantic dramas do. Uh, Jim Carrey and Kate Winslet, they see each other and they have that little meet cute moment, you know, where they uh, are interested in each other and they and eventually they do what couples in movies do. They fall in love. And uh, the movie sort of tracks with their, with their romance, right? And they, they're taking long walks on the beach and they're going out on dates and all kinds of stuff and they're having fun and Jim Carrey's funny and so she laughs and... But then eventually the movie gets real and shows like what happens when relationships are honest and transparent and we begin to see not just the best version of each other, but actually the real version of each other. And this couple who are in love, who are so in love with each other, eventually hate each other because of the conflict that has taken over in their relationship. And in fact, they hate each other so much, they wish the other person didn't even exist. They wish that I've never even met you. I wish I didn't even know you were a real person. I would like to erase you from my memory. And what's uh, great about the universe of the movie, the world that the movie takes place in, is there's this company, it's kind of science fiction-y, a company you can go to, you pay them money, and they erase portions of your memory. So what do they do? They go pay this company, and they say, I hate this person so much, I want them sucked out of my brain. I don't even want to remember that they ever even existed. And so that's what happens. They have the memories of each other erased from their brains. A reset. They go about their business. And then one day, they see each other. Like, oh, that person looks kind of interesting. Remember, they, they don't even, they've never met before. And what do you think happens? They fall in love. Well, the company that erased their brains realized this is a big deal. This is trouble. Like they already you know, met each other. They hated each other, didn't want to remember each other existed. And now they met each other again. It's like, we're just going to repeat the process. We got to fix this. And so it ends up with like this conspiracy thriller type stuff and all kinds of things. But what happens is they f figure out that they once used these companies and knew each other. And now they're getting wind of what happened. They erase the memories of each other and they get a hold of these tapes because part of the process of having the memory erased is going through everything just basically revealing everything, and they record it all. And now they each have these tapes about how much they hate the other person. And they're thinking, really? I, like, I mean, I didn't, it doesn't feel like I'll end up hating them, but I knew them before, and I hated them so much. Like, it wasn't just like, hey, let's break up, but like, I, I wanted to forget they even existed. That's how much I hate them. And they listen to the tapes, and they 
hear themselves reveal the animosity, the violations against the other person. And what do you think they decide to do? They decide to give it another go. Love prevails. Now, this is like a weird Hollywood movie. It's not a Christian movie at all. It's not informed by the doctrine of grace or anything like that. But sometimes we find residues of truth in the world, don't we? There's a, because of common grace, there are sometimes these little beams of light that break through some of the ruins sometimes and remind us of the other world, remind us of a deeper truth. Love wins out. They decide, despite now knowing everything, I'm going to give it another go. There's a biblical precedent actually, for this kind of love. Think of the prophet Hosea. The Lord commanded Hosea to marry a prostitute. Hosea chapter 1, verse 2, when the Lord first spoke to Hosea, he said this to him, go and marry a woman of promiscuity. Now, why would God command Hosea to do such a thing? It's one thing to marry a woman and find out later that she's a prostitute or she becomes a prostitute later. This is, knowing she's a prostitute, marry her. Well, the Lord is creating through this prophet really a real-world illustration of his own commitment to Israel. As you keep reading throughout Hosea and indeed the rest of the Old Testament, you see that God is rebuking the spiritual adultery of his people. They've gone after other gods. They make repeated commitments to disobedience. They don't commit wholeheartedly to the one true God, Yahweh. And God has covenanted with them. He's committed his life to them, but they are every single day cheating on him. And this is in turn a picture of Christ and his bride, the church. He declares us righteous, spotless, clothed in his perfection, but doing so is an immense outpouring of grace because every day you and I decide in some ways little, but in some ways big to cheat on Jesus with some other thing we think will satisfy us or validate us or give us peace or give us happiness. That's what sin is, in effect, saying, God, you don't satisfy me in this moment, this does. We every day drift into decisions of the flesh and fail to give him all that he is due, and yet he never leaves. He never leaves. He has committed himself from the beginning to people he knows are going to cheat on him. You and I wouldn't do that. Would any of us standing at the altar with a spouse-to-be and, and, and being able to see into the future, to see right into the future and, and, and know the things that people get divorced for later, if you could know that at some point, I'm going to be so hurt in this relationship, so betrayed in this relationship, I will wish that this relationship didn't exist. If you thought that, you wouldn't stand at the altar with that person, would you? You choose people based on the best intentions, the best vision of the future. You would never do that to me. Therefore, that's why I'm committing to you. And yet we know that it happens. So imagine you could stand at the altar and see in five years, this husband, this wife is going to have an affair. In four years, this husband, this wife is going to give up and, and, and stop paying any attention or, or become addicted to pornography or some, and, and their heart is going to turn cold toward me. In 10 years, this spouse is going to cheat on me with my best friend. Would you still say I do? Of course you wouldn't. You stand at the altar assuming that, there's, there's, that would not happen. That's why I'm saying I do to this person because they're not the person that would ever do that to me. And yet Jesus stands at the altar with each one of us. He sees right through the veil. He sees right through the fig leaves. He sees it all. 
every doubt, every mistake, every sin, every moment in every day in the future in which we say, Jesus, you're not enough for me. I want something else. And when asked, do you take this sinner? He says, I do. I do. John 13, one's having loved is the commitment Christ makes from the beginning that he will never leave you or forsake you. That there's nothing you can do, in fact, to get rid of him. Having loved you, he's going to keep on loving you. The kind of love that Christ has for his bride is the kind of love that has seen it all and isn't going anywhere. You are loved from the beginning. But secondly, you are loved right now. You are loved right now. Having loved his own, verse one, who were in the world, who were in the world. Do you know, brothers and sisters, he is not waiting for a better version of you to appear. This is good news. Jesus loves the real you. Not the pretend you that you want everybody to think that you are. He's not fooled by that for a second. He's not phased by that. Whoever you are, whatever you're doing, wherever you have found yourself or chosen to go, nothing can separate you from his love. It's another precious truth we, we get from Romans chapter eight. He loved his own who were in the world. What does this mean? This means that right in the thick of their confusion and their doubts and their sins, Jesus was loving them. He wasn't holding out on these men. Even at this moment, this final climactic meeting moment, they still don't get it and he's still loving them. The love of Christ is not a probationary love. He's not presenting you with some kind of contract like, all right, if you just clean up areas X, Y, and Z of your life, then you can have my love. He gives himself fully and freely to the real you, to the real you, the you inside of you, the you that you try to protect, the you that you hope that nobody sees or knows, that's the you that God loves. He doesn't love your sin, of course, but your true self, the sinner, without pretense, without facade, without image management, without religious makeup, you the sinner, you the idolater, you the worshiper of false gods, that's the you that Jesus loves. Now, if you have trouble with that idea, because it is scandalous and it is offensive, if you have trouble with that, you have trouble with Christianity because that's the message of Christianity. God loves sinners. Jesus died for sinners. If you want, Jesus died for people who got their act together, you want some other religion. And there's plenty of others out there. The only one that has grace is Christianity. Jesus died for sinners. He didn't wait for us to get our acts together, mainly because he realized we never could. He'd be waiting forever. While we were still weak, Paul says in Romans chapter five, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Tim Keller says this, the gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. And if this is true, by the way, we can finally be our true selves. Finally. I think this is what Martin Luther, the, the, the great Protestant reformer, meant when he wrote in this little letter, it's somewhat controversial today if you've ever heard him say, he, he, he told a young correspondent uh, to sin boldly. Anyone, anyone remember, are you familiar with that? Like, tell, 
Go and sin boldly. Okay, hold on a second. Uh, I don't know if that's the, the best admonition you could give. Uh, but in context, it makes a, a little bit more sense. I don't know if something's lost in the translation. He was, he was German, so I don't know if something's lost in the translation there uh, or not. But it's a little confusing. But this is, um, he's not saying, in, in, in the context of the letter, he's not saying to go on sinning as, as Paul is sort of countering in Romans chapter 6. Do we just keep sinning all the more so grace may abound? I don't think that's what he's saying at all. What Luther meant that in response to the question he was being asked by this young man is that because the good news is true, we can admit boldly that we are sinners. We don't have to be afraid of admitting we're sinners, in other words. If the gospel is true, if it's not true, then you absolutely should be protecting and hiding yourself and trying to put on the best front that you can and make sure everybody thinks that you're nice and shiny and fancy and religious. But if the gospel is true, you can own up. You can own up. And that's where this warning actually comes in, in this way of understanding the true gospel. There's a warning kind of embedded in the passage because to say that Christ loves you right now, just as you are, is not to say that his love shouldn't or doesn't change you. It doesn't mean that he means for you to stay exactly as you are. You can't clean yourself up for Jesus, but knowing the love of Jesus does have a cleansing effect. If anyone is in Christ, the scriptures say, behold, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. So to know this whole love, you must present your whole self, your whole sin to him. So Jesus comes to wash Peter's feet, verse six. Lord, you're gonna wash my feet. Peter's Italian, right? So that's how I said it with that accent. But anyway, <laughs> you're gonna wash my, forget about it. Right? No. <laughs> and Jesus answered him, what I'm doing, you don't realize now. Afterward, you will understand. Which he could say about almost literally everything he does that they don't get. Like, one of these days you're going to get it. You don't realize what I'm doing now. Afterward, you understand. Peter says, you will never wash my feet. And it seems humble. It sounds humble. But it's really not. There's some self-righteousness here. Why? This is why. Because to submit to washing means acknowledging you aren't clean. And some of us sometimes are, we seem completely unable to admit we are not clean. We still think of ourselves as good enough. And Jesus replies, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. And something seems to click for Peter in this moment. Verse nine, Lord, not only my feet, also my hands and my head. I am a filthy sinner. Don't just wash my feet. I need a bath. See, the love of Jesus isn't something to dabble in. The atoning work of Christ isn't something you can have a little bit of. Please never think of Christianity as something you can just get your feet wet in. One who has bathed, Jesus told him, doesn't need to wash anything except his feet, but he is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you, for he knew who would betray him. This is why he said, not all of you are clean. And he's talking about Judas here at this moment. And what's chilling about this scene is that Judas is sitting at the table, at this scene of love. We could even assume, it doesn't say explicitly, but we could assume that Jesus washes Judas' feet. But Judas isn't washed. Not in the way that counts, anyway. He has committed to his own way. He's only a hanger-on when it comes to the love of Jesus. He's interested in the benefits, but not the cost. 
Roger Fredrickson says, Judas has removed himself from the sphere of God's love by becoming the tool of the devil's hatred. This is how John puts it in John chapter three, verse 36. The one who believes in the son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. And here is Judas sitting at the table, getting his feet washed, and he's not an inch closer to salvation. I hope that's not you this morning at this table of love. You just come in to get a little religion. Just come in to get a little bit of Jesus for your week. A little pick me up. Put some time in so people know. You affiliate. Are you willing to let Jesus wash your feet? Get a little bit of theology here and there. Read a couple of books. Go to church. Sing some songs. Play along with the religious thing just for a little while, but not put your whole body into it? Are you refusing to give Jesus your whole self? If you want his love, you can have it. He will not withhold himself from you, but there's no halfway about it. He wants all of you. You don't get to say, Jesus, I want you in charge of the religious side of my life. And many condemned people suffer from a little gospel. And you can have a little faith. He said that we could. You could have faith the size of a mustard seed. Because it's not the strength of the faith that saves, it's the strength of the Savior. So if your faith is true, it can be weak and little. But you cannot be saved by a little gospel, a halfway gospel, a a just-get-your-feet-wet gospel. So don't be like Judas. Don't just get your feet wet in God's grace. Jump all the way in. And if you're willing to do that, if, if you're willing to offer your broken self to Jesus, you will find that his love is waiting for you right now, this very moment. No delays, no hesitations, no reluctance, no religious hoops to jump through. Right now, right here, whatever your circumstances, whatever your background, whatever your fears, whatever your doubts, whatever your hurts, whatever your sins, his love is for those who are in the world, for those who are right in the thick of it. You can be in the sphere of his love right now. To those who are suffering, he is sanctifying. To those who are doubting, he is delivering. To those who are hurting, he is comforting. To those who are dying, he is holding. To those who are sinning, he is advocating and forgiving. He will never let you go from his love. And while we're not perfect, his love is. And he will never stop. You are loved from the beginning. You're loved right now. And thirdly and finally, you are loved forever. You knew where it was going. You love forever. Having loved his own who were in the world, verse one, he loved them to the end. It's so sweet. John Knox's translation says, he gave them the uttermost proof of his love. And the immediate referent here, of course, is to the cross. This is what John is referring to in verse one, by the hour for him to depart from the world. He loved his own who were in the world so much, he's willing to go all the way to the end of the mission, all the way to the crucifixion for their sins. That's how far he's willing to go to prove his love. If you think your sins aren't that big of a deal, all you have to do is look at the bloody cross where Christ was murdered for them. And where you see the wrath of God poured out for sins, see at the same time the great, immeasurable, vast amount of love that God has for sinners. The washing that Jesus is doing in this moment is in fact even a picture of this. One commentator notes that even the phrase that's translated in verse four, he laid aside, as in he laid aside his his outer garment, is at the same 
um, translated elsewhere in the context of laying aside his life, laying down his life. How loved are you? You're loved all the way to the cross. Four chapters later in what is called Jesus' high priestly prayer, he is slumped down in spiritual anguish in the garden. The cross is even closer now. In these last moments of agony, we know from all of the parallel passages that the, the angst of what lay ahead is so crushing, he's sweating blood. And in those moments, while his disciples are napping, by the way, while they're sleeping in his worst moments, he's praying for them. And he's praying for you. That's what the Bible says. He's carrying your sin. He's buckling under the weight of your disobedience. And it says that he prays for himself. He prays for his immediate disciples. And then it says that he prays for all who will believe. So he's praying for all believers into the future. And I want to believe somehow, this is just my imagination. It doesn't say this in the text. I want to believe that somehow in the space-time economy of the omnipresent incarnate mind of our Lord, that somehow every name, face, and history of every believer who would ever live flashed through his mind as he is praying. He's God in the flesh. Surely he can do such a thing. If it says he's praying for all who will believe, maybe your name came to his mind. He's carrying your sin, interceding for you, and he's saying, Father, take care of Jared. I'm doing this for him. Father, I do this for Brandon. Father, I do this for Caleb. Give comfort to them. This is for them. In that same prayer, he says, I am in them. And you are in me, he says to the Father, so that they may be made completely one, that the world may know that you have sent me and, get this, oh, this is so staggering, that you have loved them as you love me. You ever think about that? That the Father would love us like he loves his Son, the perfect Son of God? We should think, well, there would be like tears of, of like levels of affection that he would withhold from us something. But no, to be found in Christ is to be loved as Christ is loved, according to Christ himself. And then Jesus took us to the cross with him. Paul Tripp says, Jesus didn't purchase savability. He took names to the cross. He loved you to the end of his life, but of course, he doesn't stay dead. He rises again on the third day. And while your sin stays in the grave, his love for you doesn't. It reigns and rules because he reigns and rules. Because of Christ's resurrection and ascension to the right hand of the Father, you are loved from the beginning all the way to the end for all eternity. Romans chapter 8, neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The expression that's translated here in John 13, 1, to the end, RVG Tasker says, um, could be translated completely. He loved them completely. He loves you completely. Your love from the beginning, your love now, you are loved for ever. One reason I resonate with Martin Luther, he was a very sinful guy. I resonate with that for sure. It's just very, he's just a messed up guy. Multiple, if you want to call them blind spots, if, I mean, that's just being charitable. We could also say he was a sinner and ought to be, he should have been convicted about his sin. And yet, if you know some of his backstory, that he grew up in a very religious environment, 
And in fact, even his sort of becoming religious, like for him to enter into Roman Catholicism, that was driven by fear. He was out in the middle of a lightning storm and he made a pact with God to save his life as a lightning bolt crashed down near him. He cried out to St. Anne, help me, I'll become a monk. And then he was so scared, having survived that, of not keeping his vow, he became a monk. And the... The monks there, they were frustrated with him because he was constantly confessing things and some of them even suspected he was making things up to confess. He was trying to cover all his bases. I might com commit this sin later. I'm not sure. Let me get it out in front of you. It's just, I, I gotta, he had to jump through all the hoops. And he said at one point, this is one of my favorite Martin Luther quotes. He said, if I could finally believe God loved me, I would stand on my head for joy. I don't know if you feel that. I, I feel that. I could just believe he loved me. It would change everything. And the worst mistake the Roman Catholic Church made was giving Martin Luther access to the Bible. <laughs> They're like, here, shut up about the sins. Go preach this. Teach this Bible. And most people, dated, we didn't have printed Bibles. Like, we have such an embarrassment of riches. We carry these things around in our pockets now. But the common person didn't have a Bible. They, didn't, they, they had to rely on what the church said the Bible said you're able to look down and say, that's not what this says. Why would he preach that, right? You can compare it. They couldn't do that. Now Luther has the Bible and he's looking through it and he's seeing things like you are justified by faith. The just will live by faith. And he began to think, is it true? Is that true? God really does love me despite me? I don't have to become a different version of myself for him to love me? And he was utterly transformed by the gospel, the true gospel. And I don't know if he went around walking on his head from then, from then on out. It would explain a lot of the weird things he said afterwards, but my hope for you this morning is that you walk out of here figuratively on your head for joy because it really is true. God really does love sinners. You can believe it. Let me pray for you.